You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 25th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The people who came along with it did not wish to be seen as divided into this camp and that camp. They were saying, this is law, and we're all speaking together. And I think that's really interesting. Whatever was going on, their personal thoughts on different things were put aside to the sense that law really does matter. My guests James Rogers and Steve Crawshaw will discuss the importance of the Supreme Court in politics and in public life and take a longer look at some of the day's other news stories, including with Brazil telling the world that the Amazon is nobody else's concern and China dictating terms on Hong Kong, we ask how sovereignty even works anymore in a hyperconnected planet. And we debate the role of the US in protecting journalists working abroad. Plus... Boris Johnson is currently flying back from New York to face the music that will likely now sound like Bernard Herrmann's strings for Psycho. The latest opinion from our editorial floor. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. And first up, we will be taking a look at the day's big stories with our news panel. It today consists of James Rogers, leader in international journalism studies at City University in London, and Steve Crawshaw, policy and advocacy director at Freedom From Torture. Now, it has been quite the week for Supreme Courts. Here in the UK, the country's highest legal authority ruled that the Prime Minister suspended Parliament on false pretenses. In Spain, meanwhile, the Supreme Court ruled that the remains of largely unlamented dictator Francisco Franco could be exhumed to be removed from their present repose in a state mausoleum to a less venerable cemetery. Franco's family had objected to this. The point of the judiciary in a democracy is that it is supposed to be above politics, but as we are seeing in both cases, people in politics affect not to see it like that. Um, Is a genuinely impartial Supreme Court really actually possible, Steve? I guess... Every person in the world has ideas and judges have ideas and they have Indeed. things that they are, they are thinking about. And I remember hearing a senior South African judge one time saying, you know, who are the judges you think of most historically as being important? And what it came down to his story was it wasn't the brilliant legal finessing necessarily of points, but actually they were driven by a kind of sense of humanity and that came through. So that, that clearly is true. But I think what is staggering, one of many, many, many things staggering about this judgment is the fact that we had all 11 unanimously. In other words, pretty much by definition, including different political philosophies amongst them, but sharing the sense of the rule of law matters Mm. and we need to send that really strongly. So the people who came along with it did not wish to be seen as divided into this camp and that camp. They were saying this is law and we're all speaking together. And I think that's really interesting. Whatever was going on, their personal thoughts on different things were put aside to the sense that law really does matter. Uh, James, I think it's fair to say that the response from a lot of the pro- Brexit British media this morning has been somewhat less nuanced uh, than than Steve's uh, disquisition there. Um, How genuinely dangerous or poisonous is it? And I I think we should observe in the House within the last few minutes, in fairness to him, uh, the Attorney General Geoffrey Cox uh, has issued a general warning to everybody, including MPs, against impugning the motivations of the Supreme Court justices. Uh, He has said, with the judgments, we can be robustly critical. With the motivations, we cannot. 
Yes, well, of course, there's been a particularly poisonous atmosphere in this country in the last few years since the uh, Brexit referendum in the summer of 2016. We've had newspapers, the Daily Mail, for example, uh, referring to judges as enemies of the people over a previous uh, ruling which they gave. Which um, there is there is an amount of that in the air this morning as there well. There is indeed, uh, and I think it is uh, it is extremely poisonous at the moment. And I think it also is reflected in the responses we've seen in the media and indeed on social media and indeed in politics. Uh, the Attorney General's words which you've just cited are a rare uh, voice of, of calm, of measured calm, one might say, because it seems that um, one's opinion of this is largely based upon one's political opinion rather than one's legal opinion. And I think that, I think if we look at some of the opinion polls that have come out in the last 24 hours, that tends largely to confirm that. So the idea that the law is supreme is to some extent, I think, being pushed aside by people who want to see that their political views are supreme. I mean, that's absolutely correct, isn't it, Steve? The the same people kicking off this morning about a betrayal of the people's will and so on and so forth. If the shoe was on the other foot and the Supreme Court had ruled against a Labour government which had attempted to suspend Parliament for its own ends, these same people would be trumpeting this as a great moment for the upholding of the of Britain's law, wouldn't they? Of course, absolutely. And I think that's what's important is, uh, you know, I fear that some on the other side might then also be critical of the judges. And I think it's incredible incredibly important to accept the fact that in a country of the rule of law, and we are privileged in the UK to live in, I mean, I've, I've worked and lived in places where simply it is expected that the courts do the bidding of the government, and without exception, those have been problematic I, I do think an amount of experience of places like that does invest in people a, a more profound respect for such institutions than people who haven't visited those I, I places. Think, I think that is exactly right. And it is striking that places, even in difficult places, those judges will manage often at considerable risk. We've now got a situation, I mean, as you say, the, the media is so divided, but incredible that one of the papers, the Daily Mail this morning, has a headline, Boris blast who runs Britain and the intro declared war on the judiciary last night following the shock ruling that said not as a criticism but actually praise that you have the Prime Minister declaring war on the judiciary as a whole and that is incredible I mean the echoes on that are obviously truly astonishing if you go back into history. James is there there something to be said then for the way that the United States does this. I mean, they basically acknowledge that, yes, the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court. It is there as a branch of government along with the executive um, and and Congress, etc. But obviously it's political, everything is. So when somebody has a turn at the presidency, they get a whack at appointing Supreme Court justices. Those appointees are therefore subject to public scrutiny of their records and their beliefs and their views. And not that it necessarily makes anybody any happier, but at least it is transparent. There isn't a pretense that judges are not you know, as Steve was saying, people with their own ideas and opinions which may guide how they interpret the law. Well, I think certainly there is something to be said for that, and that system has worked very well in the United States. I mean, the di- to, I mean, to, again, depending on your political views <laughs> at any given time. But the difference here is, of course, this is a relatively new institution in this country. That and, is and, true. and it is something that we're still really... And it's had, in that sense, it's had a very severe test very early in its existence uh, in very, very difficult times, unprecedentedly difficult times um, in, 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 in this 
constitutional crisis that we have here. Um, but it would not be it would not be within within the wider um, British traditions to have a, a Supreme Court of that kind. If you think also of ambassadors in the United States, are very often political appointees. That an incoming president will say, "Okay, well, I trust this person from business or from another walk of life, and I want to make her or him my ambassador to this or that country." That's not the tradition in this country where ambassadors and representatives of the country of that kind tend to come from the dip diplomatic service and, and are therefore assumed to be doing the, the bidding of the nation and the government of the time, but are not to have their own political views as a big part of that. Uh, influencing their duties. Um, Steve, if we return to some of the more hyperbolic criticism being made of the Supreme Court here in the UK this morning, obviously a lot of the people making these complaints are making them in entirely bad faith and for entirely partisan reasons, and one would hope at least that they know better. But it does strike me that there does seem a general bafflement as to how the system actually operates, which is obviously always going to be a factor where you don't have a constitution that you can just look up and go, oh, I see, that's how it works. Are the British public, do you think, sufficiently educated in how the system is supposed to operate? I don't think any of us can expect to really understand all the kind of the complexities. This of, is, of course, why we have a Supreme Court. This is why we have <laughs> That's a literally Court. their job. And, and that yeah. is kind of why it is weird that, you know, Old Etonian studying classics Boris Johnson manages to say confidently and publicly, I disagree with the judgment. So you have all 11 come to the same conclusion, but he somehow believes that he understands things better. And the fact that people are then ready to accept that rather than something else. That's the bit that's really startling to me. And some people saying this is, quote unquote, ineffect a dictatorship. Well, no, it's about laws and laws is supposed to be what keeps us safe. That's exactly the point. James Rogers and Steve Crawshaw, we will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. The White House has released the transcript of a telephone call between President Donald Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, which shows Trump asked his counterpart to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. Trump claims that Biden used his influence to shut down an investigation into a Ukrainian energy company, which had Mr. Biden's son on its board. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced that the Democratic-led House has moved forward with an impeachment inquiry into Trump's actions where he is accused of pressuring a foreign leader to find dirt on a political rival. An Iranian official has said there is no chance of a meeting between Trump and Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, while they are both in New York City for the United Nations General Assembly this week. Speaking at the UN, Trump called on world leaders to join the U.S. in pressuring Tehran over the attacks on Saudi oil facilities, which have been blamed on Iran. And China has opened an enormous multi-billion dollar airport in the nation's capital, Beijing. It's thought that Darsing International, which was designed by late architect Zaha Hadid, is the world's biggest single building terminal, shaped like a starfish. The airport was officially unveiled by the Chinese Premier Xi Jinping. Those are some of the stories we are following here at Midori House. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Steve Crawshaw and James Rogers. Another issue prodded into the spotlight by yesterday's Supreme Court decision in the UK is the question of sovereignty and the limits thereof. Most of the loudest complaints inevitably about a British court upholding British laws have come from Brexiters who once claimed to want exactly that. But much of the Brexit argument has been about how sovereignty is even supposed to work in a hyperconnected world. Similar questions 
questions are raised by, for example, Brazil's attitude to the global resource of the Amazon and Britain's responsibility to its former colony in Hong Kong. Um, James, is there a simple way of delineating or understanding what sovereignty actually means now? No, I don't think it is. And I think one of the um, this is one of the great difficulties if we, we consider the example of the Amazon rainforest and what President Bolsonaro has said about that. One of the examples which those who people who are in favour of the European Union and the way it cooperates on an, inter- on an international level and indeed the United Nations is that environmental challenges are precisely those which need to be solved internationally in the sense of between nations because obviously a fire in the Amazon rainforest is going to affect much more uh, than simply the immediate surrounding area in the same way that pollution in northern Europe affects much more than the the cities in which that pollution is produced in terms of how it affects rainfall and so on. So I think um, particularly uh, and we are not only interconnected of course in terms of the environment but increasingly so in terms of trade Uh, and so now I don't think it is in terms, it is possible to talk about that in the same way that one could have done in the 19th century, for example. And yet we live in a world where these international organisations seem increasingly to be less trusted and and, and big countries, big powerful countries, seem to be vesting less importance in them. Uh, Steve, do there need to be then, and Lord alone knows how you would organise the politics of this, but do there need to be more legal frameworks enabling I guess, the overriding of sovereignty along the lines, perhaps, of the UN Convention on Genocide, which not merely permits intervention in such circumstances, but by some readings of it actually obliges intervention in such circumstances. Exactly. And that was a kind of change which over many decades was happening. I mean, if if we'd been having this conversation 10 years ago, it would have been a quite different one of the the, the wave going. So going back into history, we go back to the 17th century, the word Westphalia, 17th century treaty, which kind of says borders are borders, you do what you like with in your borders. Following the Second World War, that was like, whoa, we kind of got that wrong a bit, and there was a sense, but it really took Rwandan genocide and other things to say, we do have responsibilities. And out of that came um, this big UN, uh, it's not quite a treaty, but a, a UN agreement called Responsibility to Protect, which says, at a certain point, we are all citizens in the same world, and if terrible things are happening somewhere else, we have rule. People got worried that that became a synonym or might become a synonym for invading other countries to create regime change, which was never what that was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about taking note of what was happening and and speaking up for that and doing whatever could be done. And now we're kind of in that reversal period. Donald Trump certainly has a lot to answer for in this sense. He just doesn't seem to care remotely what happens elsewhere as long as it suits his own personal agenda. And it kind of makes it much easier for others. That old phrase of interference in internal affairs is a mm. classic old phrase. It was used by the Soviet Union when it existed, used by communist China for many, many years. Used by China right now. And exactly. And now they kind of stopped using it a bit or were a little bit more embarrassed to use it in the era. But actually, it's now come back really strongly. And that's what's troubling is you're not seeing any country really being able to push back with authority because of America's crumbling authority in so many different ways. James, there is uh, here and in the United States, when if you look at the big culture war fractures of of Brexit and Trump, there is a tendency for those who, when those who speak up on behalf of that old school sovereignty idea uh, of, you know, strong borders, your own currency, your country first and devil take the hindmost, etc. There's a tendency to write them off as as being uh, sentimental nostalgists uh, for a world that can't come back if indeed it ever existed. But 
Is there also just as much dogmatic illogic to be found on the other side of the argument? Those people who just uh, you know, people who advocate for things like open borders, shared currencies across nations, and so forth. Is there actually still anything to be said for upholding some aspects of the old school idea of national sovereignty? Well, it certainly seems to help to win elections these days. <laughs> let's put it that way. I mean, I think, and I think we are, we are. You know, there, I think there are a couple of issues here. Firstly, the fact that there is. There seems to be, uh, as Steve has been alluding to, there seems to be a decrease in the will to participate in these international things. But the second thing, and this has always been the case, is who's going to enforce this? We don't have a world police force who are eventually going to come and say, look, you can't do that. And so nobody's going to tell the United States off for, for polluting. One wonders if anybody's going to tell China off for what happens in Hong Kong more than um, diplomatic utterances. Uh, and so I think there is still something to be said for that. And as I say, it certainly seems to be very popular. Certainly in Western Europe, it has caught the mood uh, of many publics, maybe not to the same extent of delivering crushing electoral victories, but it's certainly a growing force in politics, as indeed it is in the, in, the, in the rest of the world. One could almost argue, in fact, that President Putin's success in Russia over the last two decades is adhering to this kind of, these kind of political principles. OK, well, let's look finally on our news panel at Press Freedom with a specific reference to a discouraging story from the United States. It has emerged that a couple of years back, the New York Times bureau chief in Cairo, Declan Walsh, was due to be arrested by local authorities displeased with his reporting. A whistleblower within the Trump administration, who feared that the Trump administration planned to do nothing about this, told the New York Times who alerted Ireland's embassy in Cairo. Walsh is an Irish citizen and an Irish diplomat duly escorted him post-haste to the airport. Um... Steve, first of all, does the US, and going back to what we were just talking about, about the limits of sovereignty, does the US here have any get-out clause on the basis that they can legitimately say, look, he's an Irish citizen, it's not our problem? Well, that would be... To say that would be cheeky would be an understatement. I mean, thank God that he had an Irish passport and they would be able to to stand up. But of course, fundamentally, this was the most cynical calculations possibly. I mean, the the many threats to journalism worldwide are are disturbing. But the idea that a US administration under Trump would simply look away is so disturbing. Trump himself is, is... simply a morality-free zone, frankly. He said publicly that he praises torture. He's in the middle of trying to appoint to a key human rights post somebody who has also said torture is a marvellous thing. And here he is with a journalist threatened being arrested by one of the most torturing regimes that there has been. Appalling stuff, both under Mubarak, but continuing now. And just looking away from that, it is very traditional if a journalist represents a paper from your country, then you regard that person as fundamentally of your country. I mean, that's been true always. And so I think even if he'd been uh, an American passport holder, the the reaction would have been just the same. And it's Mm. so troubling, the idea that we just don't need to speak out. We saw the same thing, of course, with um, Khashoggi, that the the journalist who was tortured and, and murdered by the Saudis within the consulate. And again, Trump seems unable to speak out on those themes. The phrase he used last week was, you know, Saudis pay cash in terms of what kind of pressures. Like, we, we, we like them because. It, it's, a, it's a pretty startling place to have got to. And, I, and it goes back to the rules-based things that we were talking about at the beginning. Here you've got the torture ban is the international thing which everybody can sign up for. And now you have a US president who says it doesn't matter and who doesn't particularly care if a journalist gets arrested 
with who knows what fate. I mean, I think it's important to note that embassy staff do do, and I have had some personal experience of that. this, do do their absolute damnedest uh, in such circumstances. Mm. Uh, years Absolutely. Ago, years ago, in Absolutely. about 2005, I think, I was arrested in Cameroon. Um, and I think, if I remember how the chain of communication went, somebody from RSF told the Australian embassy or high commission in Abuja in Nigeria, because Australia doesn't have an embassy in Cameroon, but they contacted the Canadian embassy in Yaoundé. The Canadian embassy in Yaoundé somehow found a nun, a Canadian nun in a convent in the same town in which I was being held, um, who cycled down the hill with a basket full of sandwiches and a, a thermos of coffee uh, and generally made sure I was being properly looked after. It was, and, and then I was sort of supervised remotely uh, as I was escorted uh, out of the country. Um you know, extraordinarily resourceful and uh, and and bold, in fact, and I was very very grateful for it. But um, basically, James, what are the responsibilities any government has if they know that a journalist, either from who holds their passport uh, or who works for a paper from their country, is in strife? Well, they have the same responsibilities as they do to uh, any passport holder of that country to offer assistance, but also, of course, the uh, the so-called laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, do provide for special treatment for journalists as well. Um, I mean, I think reading this article from the New York Times, which has prompted our discussion, it's a quite astonishing uh, to read the, the uh, words attributed to somebody in the um, US Embassy in Cairo saying what did you expect would happen to him, referring to Mr Walsh, his reporting made the government look bad, and it, something which the Times described as that cynical worldview. I mean I think that the real uh, held by the Trump administration, which clear, clearly it is, um, of course journalists cause trouble, I mean I too have had a degree of help um, from British embassies and British diplomats around the world when I've been in difficult places, but um, uh, one, one senses that you know the mood toward general mood towards journalism has changed a lot. Journalism has very, very few friends these days. Uh, at a time, I think, when it is probably needed more than ever. And but you know, if we look back into history, even in this country, you know, in the 18th century, you could be put in the pillory for and you could be imprisoned, and indeed your servants could be imprisoned if you uh, publish well, something not, which not, was like my servants. Indeed, even your servants. <laughs> God, Andrew, they'd, they'd, and, they'd, be, they'd be distraught, and no <laughs> none to bring them sandwiches either. I suspect. Um, so, but I think you know we live in times when journalists, traditional journalism, economic model, model, models have collapsed. And it is under political pressure in Western democracies as never before, sustained, almost principled pressure. But just finally on this, Steve, to go back to the United States, the Reporter Sans Frontier downgraded it on its Press Freedom Index this year to 48th out of 180. In an ideal world, how important is the United States of all countries in being an advocate and defender of press freedom? It's hugely important. I mean, I know this is kind of cliche stuff, but it is absolutely true that people do look to America, even during the dark times, have looked to America somehow standing up for the right things. When you have the US president saying that journalists are the enemy of the people, it's not just important for America, but that's an incredibly important green light uh, for those who will quote those phrases in really dark contexts around the world. Steve Crawshaw and James Rogers, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. You're listening to Monocle's House Views. Stay tuned.
You've read Monocle's daily email digest. Now listen to the podcast. The Monocle Minute is now in your inbox and in your ears at 6am London time. That's 7am in Zurich. With all the news, views and clever comment you've come to expect from our unrivaled team of editors, correspondents and bureaus around the world. You can fit a lot into a Monocle Minute. Just ask our editor, Andrew Tuck. We cover everything. We cover news, we cover business, we cover fashion, we cover design. And there are sectors that we know very well. Hospitality, aviation, urbanism. Stay in the loop in just 10 minutes with the stories setting our agenda. The Monocle Minute is our essential daily bulletin. Tune in at 6am London time on Monocle 24 and look out for the podcast. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's senior editor, Robert Bound, reflects on how Britain's political framework is holding up under the weight of chaos. In his first two months in power, the British Prime Minister has lost his first six votes in the House of Commons, broken the law in suspending Parliament and misled the monarch. It's quite a track record. Despite the Queen's catchy old name, Sovereign, Parliament is sovereign in fact, and yesterday morning as thunder crashed over London, the maximum number of 11 justices of the UK's Supreme Court unanimously found Parliament not to have been prorogued legally. In fact, not prorogued at all. MPs effectively have been ordered back to Westminster. Good news for those who want to debate with the government, Bad news for the government. Standing in the rain, the Speaker of the House of Commons said that there will be full scope for urgent questions, for ministerial statements and for applications for emergency debates. Boris Johnson is currently flying back from New York to face the music that will likely now sound like Bernard Herrmann's strings for Psycho. But who will be stabbed in the shower scene? The political journalist Carol Walker told Monocle 24 that although Johnson's advisers, such as Dominic Cummings, are likely to advise him to put on a show of force, some more senior civil servants may say it's time to think again. Johnson has been asked if he'll resign, and he surely won't. Johnson has asked for a general election, but for the time being, the opposition Labour Party won't agree to one. It's likely that Johnson's chief adviser, Dominic Cummings, urged him towards this do-or-die politicking. If Johnson's wires, he'll encourage that Primarch Machiavelli to fall on his sword, praying that it is dead sharp. Fancy that, Brexiters. A sovereign UK court making a decision you don't like. Ah, remember the good old European Court of Justice. That was Robert Bound. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Will Higginbotham. Our studio managers were Kenya Scarlett and David Stevens. Coming up at 20 Daniel has a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>